listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus it will burst into bloom it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy the glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon they will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God strengthen the feeble hands steady the knees that give way say those who those with fearful hearts be strong do not fear your God will come he will come with vengeance with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on in that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sign will flee away. Our New Testament reading comes from James 5, 7 through 11 and 19 through 20. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Curzons. Very important. So Pedro and Geronima had been living in Guatemala. And they'd seen the prospects of what life was going to be like for them. And they weren't really optimistic. 
the, the economy in their country was in shambles. Uh, they didn't have a lot of social connections that led them to believe that they'd be able to have an upwardly mobile life. And so they did something that was very, very dangerous, and they started making the northward journey toward the United States. And not having a ton of money and just the, the resources on their back, they, they started making their way up through Mexico, and as they approached the Mexico-U.S. border, uh, they entrusted themselves to, to a coyote, to someone who would, who would smuggle them into the United States, a highly, highly dangerous thing. They found themselves on the other side of the border. They're in southern Texas, and they heard that there might be a job in the panhandle of Oklahoma. They don't know anybody there. They do not speak a word of English, but with the, the limited resources they had, with the clothes on their back, they make their way to Guymon, Oklahoma. And uh, Pedro finds a job working in a meat processing plant in Hieronima, begins uh, finding work here and there. They're living in a house full of other people, and, uh, and they, they hope that they're beginning to find their way into the American dream. They were surprised and as pleased as could be when they found out that Hieronima was pregnant. And it had been a rather um, unexpected, it was an an unexpected pregnancy, but it was also an uneventful pregnancy. Things had been going really well until their son Daniel was born. And when Daniel was born, it appeared that not everything was right uh, with with his body. And the the folks at the hospital there in Guyman referred him to a hospital here in Tulsa, and Pedro and Hieronima hopped on a Greyhound bus, and they made their way in a country where they know hardly anyone to a city where they know no one, in a hospital where there's a language barrier between them and the people providing care. And it became clear that Daniel had uh, an issue with his heart, and he was probably not going to make it. And finally, some volunteer translators were able to come, and they discussed what their options were be, and they, after a long process and eliminating as many options as they could, they made the very difficult decision that they were going to have to take their son off of life support. And Pedro and Hieronima were there with the doctors and the very caring nurses and the staff as they pulled the life support off of their son Daniel, who'd lived in this world about 30 days. A couple days later, a a funeral home here in town very mercifully invited them to come and to have a service, and they had a a service in very broken Spanish from a pastor that they did not know, and they were alone. And there were no flowers, and when there should have been a meal train set up, there was no one around who really knew them. And that moment, sitting on the cold pavement, that bench sitting next to where their, their son is in the ground, they just felt utterly alone and despairing, not even sure how they were going to make their way back to Gaiman where they didn't know anybody. They were feeling the weight of darkness and destitution and despair. And I think that when the scriptures tell us that uh, the gospel is good news for the poor, And I think when Jesus pronounces blessings on those who are bankrupt in spirit, and when he says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think he's thinking of people like Pedro and Hieronima. In a place where they're desperate for divine intervention and have limited ability to help themselves. And it's in this kind of sober posture that the season of Advent begins. The season of Advent begins in the dark, where cognizant 
of, of how depraved and messed up our world is, how far our world is from God's pre-creational intent. We look forward to the future where things are so bad that only divine intervention can help. And we look forward with hope to the day that Jesus Christ will return as he promised to lift our heads and to renew and to restore all of creation. Advent this season <clears throat> is not primarily <clears throat> a time where we remember that all is merry and bright. Advent is not primarily a countdown to Christmas, but instead it's a countdown with hope to the day when Christ returns. It's a time of longing and a time of laboring for the world that will be when Jesus comes back as he promised. Last week we talked about uh, how when he returns, or two weeks ago we talked about it's going to be an Advent of promise. It's going to be an Advent of peace where Things like swords being beaten into plowshares, the, the industry surrounding war and weaponry is going to be a thing of the past. We talked last week about how Advent, when, when Christ returns, there's going to be an Advent of justice. And justice is not a word that's owned by one political party. Ab justice is actually a Bible word. And justice flows from the identity and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. And today, thinking of people like Pedro and Hieronima, we're going to explore how the second coming of Jesus is going to prove to be an advent of mercy. Isaiah is, is one of the like, favorite prophets of the season of Advent. <clears throat> and Isaiah, in Isaiah 35, employs some really evocative imagery to talk about what it will be like when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 35, 1, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus or the rose. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. So not knowing these places, we can't necessarily relate to them, but the imagery here is dry and desolate places. When the Messiah returns, will will find themselves in the middle of a resurrection. Those who live there will be rejoiced and will be relieved when against all hope, these arid places suddenly burst into bloom and they blossom. And there's an exchange that will happen, according to the prophet, that the, the, the places of beauty calls to mind Lebanon. Uh, the, the, the cedars of Lebanon were often talked about as like the uh, a tool for building the palaces of the kings of Israel and the temple of Israel. The beauty that belonged to places like that will be given instead to the desolate places. And then it talks about the uh, Carmel, the beauty of Carmel. Carmel was that place where Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, but it was also uh, a place that was known for an abundance of flora. It was, it was beautiful. Its name means vineyard or garden land. Carmel was so beautiful that in Song of Psalms, it's used as a metaphor for talking about a, a, a place of fertility and beauty. Sharon. Do we have any Sharons in the room? We got one Sharon down. Sharon, you're going to love this. This is just for you. Sharon, similarly, was known as the Singing Plains. It's a place of lush beauty. Sharon, you are lush beauty. The, the prophet says that these, the dry and desolate places, the places that are forgotten and undesirable, 
will be given the glory of those places that are most desirable. And the people whose lives feel dry and desperate, those who suffer from physical ailments, they too will find relief, verses 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness, and there will be streams in the desert. Do you kind of get the, the picture of the exchange? Here's how you relate to it most personally. There were some people who seemed like high school, they were like the apex predator of their high school. Like everything right happened for them at age 17 and 18. John Moreland, who's this Oklahoma songwriter, talks about like, you know, how those, those kids looked like movie stars in the lights of the gym as they walked in for homecoming. I think the kind of exchange that's happening here is, is the people who are never asked to the dance and the people who are last picked for the team and the folks who are like, oh yeah, I forgot they were in our grade. Those people receive the glory and the honor that's due them. There's an exchange that will happen, a right-sizing that happens when the mercy of God our Savior and Jesus Christ appears before us. The people who have just, they've just always got a limp. There's always something that feels like it's dragging them down. Things that have happened to them, choices of, of which they're the victims. There will be a reversal in the age to come, and these places will truly like be late bloomers, and their bloom, their blossoming will be glorious. There's an exchange that's going to happen. When John the Baptist was locked up in, the, in prison after speaking against King Herod, uh, he, he may have been going through his own dark night of the soul. He knew better about his cousin Jesus, and yet he sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus responds to his cousin John with language taken straight from Isaiah 35, which would, for John, have called to mind this whole chapter. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. What is happening in and through my ministry, Jesus says. Well, the blind receive sight and the lame walk. And then he expands it. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus evokes this language from Isaiah 35 and tells John, signs of God's divine mercy have come in and through my own ministry. But it was just a taste of what was to come. The psalm that we read through similarly portrays this merciful reversal that is so delightfully characteristic of God. 146 says, He upholds the cause of the oppressed. God gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. God has his eyes on the outcasts. God has his eyes on those who are suffering. Verse 9 says, The Lord watches over the foreigner, people like Pedro and Hieronima, and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Now, it is certainly going to be the case, thanks be to God, that in the age to come, many of us, you and I, are going to be beneficiaries of the mercy and the kindness and the generosity of God. That is true. But it is also true in the present age 
And many in this room, including myself, are among the most privileged and cared for and educated and healthy. And when it comes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, like, like unbelievably blessed people in all of human history. In fact, I'll look up this morning and I can share the link so you can do the same. If you are married and you earn $50,000 and you have two children, you are richer than 89.4% of the world's population. If you're married with two kids and you earn $50,000, you are richer than 89.4% of the world's population today. Now, you might not feel richer than 9 of 10 people on planet Earth, but this demonstrates the danger of the bubble. Turn to the person next to you and say, beware the bubble. What is the bubble? In the bubble, we primarily interact with people who are just like us. And we believe that the world is full of people who are just like us. In the bubble, surrounded by folks who are similarly privileged and blessed and educated, we forget that we are already living more opulent lives, every one of us in this room, than like all of the kings of history past. And we think this is normal. In the bubble, we think this is our due. In fact, we actually think that we're due a little bit more. And appreciating that we're richer than 9 out of 10 people on planet Earth, we do well to meditate on the words of Jesus that the great reversal may surprise us in ways we don't totally expect. These are hard words from Jesus in what's called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you'll mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Thanks, Jesus. Now, I don't condemn us, again, all of us in this room for being rich. In fact, the scriptures teach us there's actually a really right way to be rich. We'll come back to that. But I do want us to remember and appreciate the danger of the bubble. Beware the bubble. This is why it's such a significant experience, particularly for teenagers when they encounter global poverty for the first time. They realize, oh, not everyone lives like I do. It's important to to see the world outside of the bubble and appreciate the wisdom of deliberately connecting, deliberately exposing ourselves to some of the pain points felt by people in places all around the world, those places and those people who are so desperate for God's mercy. I remember a couple of years ago with World Vision, I got to go to the Bacaw Valley of Lebanon, which is like wine country in California that's now full of hundreds of thousands of refugees, Syrian refugees, in a country the size of Rhode Island, where before the Arab Spring, they had a population of like four million people. They had an influx of something like two or two and a half million people. Camping out in tents, these little tarp villages, you can see the white UN tents and videos from CNN. I got to go to one of these. And I remember being led through this refugee camp with muddy pathways and not far in the distance were the mountains. And I remember turning a corner and coming and I saw this little boy who's probably about 8 or 10 years old sitting in a bucket and he was drooling from his mouth. Some of you have perhaps heard me share this before. His name was Abdul Karim. Memorable because it is not Karim Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul Karim. And we met his mom and we sat in his mom's tent and she shared... 
Abdul Karim was, had, had some very special needs. And one of the best ways they could just contain and occupy him was he sat there in the middle of the path in the bucket, and sometimes people would talk to him as he went along. Their father had been killed in the, in, in the Syrian war, and here they are, again, in a country where they don't know anybody, and a mom with other kids and a special needs child. I think, Lord, if, if it means not taking my call, answer her prayers. Uh, some of you, if you saw on social media in the last couple of days, I got a video from a friend of ours who's our contact with Syrian refugees in Lebanon, and he sent me this video of two little girls, again, whose, whose father was a martyr, and they're going to sleep without heat. Again, the mountains separating Lebanon and Syria were right there, and these children are going to bed hungry, and then the cold, I think, Lord, if it means ignoring my call, listen to their prayers. We need to be in touch with the pain points of the world. I think about when Emily and I lived in Honduras and we worked in this little mountain community outside of Tegucigalpa called Mogote. And Francis was a woman who we interacted with a lot in the ministry. And, and Francis was a verbal processor, certainly a six on the Enneagram. And I remember um, Francis sharing with me and with, with really all of us just all of the worries that she had about feeding their children and whether her sons would end up in gangs as a way of finding like, solidarity and purpose. I remember thinking, uh, talking just outside the door, more and more folks experiencing homelessness in Tulsa are showing up at our door. There's a woman asleep at the door this morning. And talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago who shared about being a victim of abuse as a child and, and then some of the tragedies that he went through, the traumas that he experienced serving in the military and the dysfunction of his family and has been on the streets for as long as he can remember. And I also think about even in, in our community that many, so many of us who quietly experience chronic pain or a pain point as a result of a prayer that's not answered, or we have parents or grandparents, family members who are incarcerated, it's good for those of us who are privileged and blessed, those of us who are richer than nine out of ten people on planet Earth, to be in touch with the pain points of the world. And it is also good for all of us to remember that in the age to come, when Jesus the Messiah returns, these people will be among those who are the happiest and the most relieved at His coming the casualties and the victims of war who no longer need fear the sword because the swords will be beaten into plowshares. The people who no, no longer need to hide in shame for God will lift their heads who no longer need to weep alone because God himself will be with them and will be their God and God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes promising I'm going to make everything new. It's going to be okay. The scriptures at the time of Advent speak a word of good news, of light shining to those who are in the land of darkness. And to those who suffer, and I would say particularly to the poor, the global poor, the victims of injustice, the casualties of war, the Lord says, strengthen your feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, if you have a fearful heart, I'm supposed to say this to you, be strong and don't fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. There will be a great reversal. With divine retribution, He will come to save you. In James' letter to the churches, which Ella James read for us just a couple of minutes ago, he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
And he gives us the agricultural metaphor of see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. But God promises to those who suffer and to those who go without and to those who long for the world will be, hold on. Our God is going to come to save you. Jesus will return as he promised. And as much as this is a word of comfort to all of us, there's also a, war, a word of challenge and instruction for all of us. To the many of us who find ourselves in the present age well-fed and well-cared for and well-spoken of by others, the scriptures remind us, as we saw last week, that strength is for service, not for status. In seeing the pain points of the world, being willfully exposing ourselves to the pain points of the world, we are called to join Jesus in being ambassadors of mercy. And our failure to think rightly about these things, our failure to break out of the bubble, to use our plenty for good, and for the benefit of those who go without, is actually consequential. Jesus tells a story, a parable, in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and the poor man, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man has everything that he wants and the poor man goes without. He, has, he longs to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. His body is covered in sores. Jesus even included the detail in the dogs would come and lick his sores. But in the age to come, there's a great reversal. The poor man, Lazarus, finds himself in comfort at Abraham's side and the rich man finds himself in a place of torment. And on the other side of death, there's a great like, light, light bulb that goes off in the mind of this rich man who realizes that he had his perspective all wrong about riches all of his life. And he petitions the poor man, Lazarus, please go and warn my family so that they can correct you know, what I didn't get right. They said, even if someone who, who came from the dead would go and warn them, they still might not heed the warning. I heard somebody say, some people are so poor that all they have is money. May it not be so among us. Paul gives commands to those of us who are rich in the present age, which, again, is all of us. Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. Deuteronomy says it's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So don't be arrogant, nor to put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How to be rich? Command those who are rich in the present age to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. For those who suffer, for those in mourning, for those in weeping, for those who find themselves destitute, the message of Advent is a message of good news, of light shining in the darkness, that it will not be so forever, that God hears the prayers of the poor, and God will come to save them. There will be a great reversal in the age to come, and yet this is also a word of warning and invitation to all of us who are well-fed and about whom people speak well now. 
that we're invited to leverage and to use all of the resources that God has entrusted to us to join him in his mission to make all things right and all things well, and in doing so, laying up treasures for ourselves so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. As we get ready to receive communion, it, it is, uh, it's good for us to reflect on our own lives, to reflect on what are those things that we treasure the most in all of the world. Are we taking hold of the life that is truly life, or are we trying to, like Donald Miller talked about in one of his books, live out a story where the hero drives away in a Volvo? Because that's the life story that we're trying to lead, building and angling and climbing so that the people that we don't really like all that much might ultimately like us and we acquire goods for ourselves. Uh, Bill Murray made this movie based on a book. Uh, the movie's called The Razor's Edge. It's based on a book by the same title by W. Somerset Maugham. The reason he uh, was in Ghostbusters, like he agreed to be in Ghostbusters so that they would make this movie. And in the movie, he tells the story of this character living through the opulent teens who sees the horrors of war and comes back and he sees that life is not all about wealth. And he says, I've been given a second chance at life. I don't want to spend all of my life on a big house and a new car every year with a bunch of friends who just want a big house and a new car every year. What is the treasure that you seek and that I seek? What is the thing that we're setting our hearts on? And in what ways might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to break out of the bubble, to be grateful and content, and to leverage the resources you have for the sake of others? As we come to the table, we reflect, we invite the Holy Spirit to speak these words of comfort and these words of challenge to us, and we thank the Lord Jesus, each of us, for the mercy that he's extended to us, not treating us as our sins deserve, but because he knows that we are dust and to dust we will return, has mercy on us. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.